But remember that last week, we talked about how we're in a battle. This battle has huge consequences, and we talked about a couple examples of that, of people who felt the consequences of this battle. And this that we're in is see our enemy, and in 1 Peter, you'll remember that Satan is described as a lion, right? And hence the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And, and as a lion, his, he is on the prowl, and his desire is to devour us, to consume us. And in his quest to do that, he uses our culture to tell us things all the time. Our, our culture is constantly sending messages to us. Some of the messages it sends are right on track. However, there are some that are not on track. Remember, we talked last week about um, the culture tells us winning the lottery is awesome, right? What our culture doesn't tell us is that 65% of people who win the lottery are broke within 15 years. Um, did anybody here get married this past week? Okay, one here in front, two in the back, one over here. That's a lot. No, not really. Um, did anybody get engaged? Another one. All right, so you'll remember we, the culture tells us expensive weddings are the best, right? And expensive engagement rings are awesome. But we looked at, there was a study that was published in CNN, 3,100 couples, the more expensive the wedding, the shorter the marriage. The more expensive the engagement ring, the shorter the marriage. Wow, so would you rather have an expensive wedding? Are you more interested in the wedding or the marriage? Culture doesn't tell us that. So there's a lot of things that our culture tells us that aren't true. So we did last week into this quest to go through 12 and a half lies that the culture tells us and comparing them to Scripture. Everybody, hold up one hand. All right, hold up a hand. Either hand's good. This is the lie the culture is telling you. Hold up this hand, the other one. This represents Scripture. What we're doing tonight and last week, we're looking at these, saying this is what the culture tells us, and this is what the truth of, God words tell, or the truth of God's Word tells. We're comparing those two, so we'll see this is what's truth. Simon says, put your hands down. Thank you. <laughs> I thought of that last week, and I want to stand up and sit down. I didn't even say Simon, but you did it anyway. So anyway, that's what we're doing. My, my two tires for this time last week and this week is that all of us will get a very clear understanding that God has told us things in His Word that are true compared to what we constantly hear from our culture. That's one. The other is, I hope that many of us in this room would tune in to one or two of these specific lies that are something that we realize, wow, that thing really has me turned upside down with a wink. So it could be last week, some of the, we talked about four last week, and it could be that one of those four is one that you thought, wow, I really haven't thought about that, thought that this is what God says compared to the way I've been thinking. And, and we have these four up here already. You remember last week we talked about the secret of contentment. You know, contentment really, it should be more our view of contentment. Remember Paul in Philippians wrote about the secret of it. It's because he knew he could do everything through Christ. And contentment really should be based on our view of God rather than our view of things. So that was an example of this comparing what the culture tells us with what Scripture tells us. So, how many lies do we have to go through tonight? Six, seven, eleven. Nobody really knows. All right, so we started with twelve and a half. We did four last week. There's not time to do all eight and a half, so we only have seven tonight. Nonetheless, we're going to move quickly. And it was interesting to me last week 
The guys in my small group were trying to figure out what number five was, and they were guessing. And they had some good guesses. They were wrong, but they were good. Um, let's jump into it. So number five is the fifth lie, and this is the lie that cult our culture tells us. Life is all about, what do you think? Me? No? Life is all about competition, and you have to be first. All right? I feel that we live in a culture that is so achievement-oriented and hyper-competitive, whether it's you know, certainly athletics, but also academics. So if you're in color guard, show choir, band, if you're in robotics, anything you're involved with, it's a competition in our world, and you got to be first. That's the way our culture is wired. Not all cultures in the world are this, but ours is very, very much this way. That's not necessarily a good thing. It's good to do our best. It's good to apply the gifts and the talents that God has given us and to, to work hard with them, but competing to be first all the time isn't necessarily the best. Let's see what Scripture has to say about that. In Matthew 20, the mother of two of the disciples, James and John, came to, hey, good, the slides are tracking with me. Nice. So, the mother of James and John came to Jesus with a request. Now, picture Jesus was the coach on a sports team, maybe a basketball team, okay? So, picture he's, he's a basketball coach of this high school team. So, look at what Matthew 20 says. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, this and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of my two sons would be the point guard and the other would be the low post on the starting lineup. No, she asked for something much, much bigger than that. She said, yeah, just picture, she's a sports bomb, and we know what they're like, right? She says, grant that one of my sons may sit on your right and the other on your left in your kitchen. Now, what happened to the rest of the team when they heard this was going on? They weren't very happy. It says, when the ten heard about this, the other ten disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. All right, so see the competition that's going on similar to our culture? So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. This is key. Just as the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus, thank you. Just as Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve, give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus said, you don't even know what you're asking. You should be asking, how can my sons be serving others more than how can they be the greatest people in the kingdom? Also in this verse, where the, the verse it's, it's actually said twice, we're familiar with it, where Jesus says, the first will be last and the last will be first. This is not talking about class rank, so don't try to be your last lowest class rank. But that's what he said in terms of our attitude of serving others. So a quick question from the Gospels. What's the greatest commandment? What? Okay, love the Lord your God. So love God. And what's the second greatest commandment? Okay, and you guys are verbose. I just say love God, love others. That's, I'd boil it down to that, but you guys know the details. A lot of this relates to our view of loving others, all right? Think about our hyper-competitive society. We want to be first, first, first in everything. And not all of us do, but our culture tells us many times we have to be. Well, think about loving others. What is love? Love is placing the needs of others, choosing rather, to put the needs of others before our own needs. 
It's a choice. So back on in our sports analogy, if, if we're competing, say we're going to tryouts, we want to be on the best team possible. We want to be on the top team, right? And if we're not in, in a top team, then we want to be a starter. And if we're a starter, then we want to make sure that we get the most playing time compared to everybody else. If we have that, we, know we want to make sure we have the most opportunities to score compared to everybody else. So we're constantly trying to continually go up, 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 up. Well, what does that say about our view of others if our mindset is all about us? Some of you thought that this lie was life is all about us. Well, in some way, that's what we're saying. How many of you have been involved in, in competitive sports somehow? Okay, a lot of you. And, and if you ask parents, why do you want your kids involved in sports, what do they say? Yeah, gets them away from the TV. Yeah, what else? I'm kidding. It builds character, right? What, what about this idea of character? What if, all right, I need an example. Who, who's been on a sports team? I have All right, who's been on a sports team and always been on the bench? All right, some of you have. Now, does that build character? It does. That's not the character our parents want when they sign us up. They want us to have other character. However, understanding that your role on the team, practice, practice hard, and help the others get better, and you're there on the bench, that's sort of a countercultural thing. That's not how we're wired. We're wired to think we should be out there. We should be playing. I don't think if Jesus was on a sports team, he would be very concerned about how many minutes he's in the game. I think his view would be completely different. I coached volleyball for 10 years, middle school, girls, and, and elementary school aged. My most prouding moment was not Amelia. No, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> it was a team she was on, and we subbed a girl out when it was her turn to serve. And so she came and she sat by me on the bench, and we had this other girl go in who hadn't in very much that year. And this girl on the bench turned to me, and she said, Coach, I'm really glad that you subbed her in because she hasn't had very many times to serve this season. I thought, wow, that's awesome for her to say. She understood the game was not all about her being in there trying to make the biggest impact possible. Philippians 2 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather humility, Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's what you should have. If you're competing against someone, whether you're, you know, we compete against other teams, but many times we're competing with someone on our own team. How many of you have ever been the number two player in your position? Anybody? All right? And, and it's almost like a person who's the number one player person above you in the depth chart, you're like your nemesis. You're like, oh, sick this week. Maybe they won't show up and I get to play. Or maybe if they get hurt, you're hoping they're hurt bad enough that they come out. I mean, not anything serious, but maybe they'll be hurt next game too, um, just so you can get in and play. Do you think Jesus would have that view if he was here? I don't think so. And what this verse says at the end, see that? Have the same mindset as Jesus. Those of you who are wrapped up in hyper-competitiveness, tune into this. And, and not just the leaders, I'm talking even to the students. Um, no, I'm serious. As a parent, this thing applies as well. Let's move on. This next lie also relates to loving, but in a different way. The culture tells us that love is a two-way street. 
It's easy to love people who love us back, right? But think about that person that's your nemesis, whether it's, you know, that person on your sports team, your math teacher, your small group leader, whatever. That person who, you know, they're not neutral to you. They're out to get you. Our culture doesn't tell us that we should love them. Our culture tells us that we should, like, you know, do what we can to get back at them. It's like our, our culture tells us it's good to love people we can't see, like hurricane victims or tsunami victims or people who are really, really down, and, down on their luck, you know, people at the Open Door Mission or homeless people. And we should love people around us who are nice to us, but our culture really doesn't tell us we should love people around us who are not nice to us. But yet that's what Jesus says. He says we should love everyone, including our enemies, even if they don't love us in return. Luke 6 says, You who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other one, someone takes your coat, don't withhold it from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And, and, you know, I think that's all pretty common to us. But as I continued to read through this passage, then it got convicting. So, so continue with me. Uh, let's see. Yeah, here it is. So this is the second part that's up there. It says, if you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Ouch. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to expecting to repay it in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Wow, that's pretty strong. And you lend something to someone, aren't you sort of concerned you're going to get it back? Yeah, I am. But verse 36, I think this is on your handouts, it says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. God gave us with us not giving him anything in return. And that's how he wants us to love others. And the fact that we're loving to those people who are part of our friend group and who are nice to us, God says that doesn't matter. Everybody does that. So think, go back to the sports analogy one last time. If you're number two on the depth chart, the person who's number one, think about this in terms of loving them. They may not be your real enemy, but do you want them to do well? Do you encourage them to do their best and to get better and better? Once again, our culture tells us, no, it's about you. Don't, don't push them any further. You've got to find your edge so you can get better than them. So these two lies come together. How they end together, that first one says, have your mind same as the mind of Jesus. And then here it's be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So we're talking about taking the traits of God, whether it's God the Father, God the Son, and making them part of our life and the way that we interact with those around. So move on to number seven. All right, everybody got your pen ready again? All right, get ready to write. It says, there is no, and this is what the world tells us many times, there is no absolute right or wrong. Or it's okay to blank, fill in the blank. I asked the guys in my small group a couple weeks ago, well, actually, 
I know, I, th- I asked them a question, and so they told me all these things. It's okay to this, it's okay to that, all these different things. The world tells us it's okay to do these things. May they say it's okay, or they say, well, it's okay as long as you don't get caught. Well, God's Word is clear that there are certain things that are wrong and that we shouldn't do them. Some people say, well, it might be wrong for you. That doesn't mean it's wrong for me. I can do what I want. It might be wrong for your parents. It doesn't mean it's wrong for you. Okay? But, but God's Word is pretty clear. Here's just one example from the book of Colossians. Paul writes, you know, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he lists out several things, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Then he goes list some more things. He says anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. He says these are things you used to do that you should no longer do. This is one example in Scripture, and there's many where God very, very clear that there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And it's not up to how we feel or who we're around. It's the way we are. As God's children, we're called by God to stand out for our behavior. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 talks about how we as Christians are the salt of the earth or we're the light of the earth. And that's what God has put us here on this planet for. He says, let your light shine before us so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So us doing the right thing should be evident to those around us. And notice, it doesn't say that they may see good deeds and think you're perfect, or they may see your good deeds and think wonderful things of you. The reason that we want to do this is not so they'll look at us. We want to do it so we're a light for God, so they will think of God and glorify Him rather than us. So, that's line number seven. This sort of feeds right into line number eight. Um, There's a dystopian book. When I was a kid, I had no idea that, what that word was. Um, but it was, this book was written long before I was around, like I think in the 30s, 1984. Have any of you read 1984? Okay, some of you have. So there's, what's that? Oh, Emma is reading it right now, and she's so excited. So there's, Emma, come on up here. Come on up here. No, no, you don't need to. So in 1984, Future Society, at least back then it was a Future Society, there's the Department of Truth. Or, no, no, there's the Ministry of Truth, and there's the Ministry of Love. What's the purpose of the Ministry of Truth, Emma? Do you know yet? They lie. They spread propaganda. What's the purpose of the Ministry of Love? To wage war. That's what they do. And so in the book, there's all these, there's these four ministries, and they do exactly what they really would say they're not doing. Our culture has taken certain terms and flipped them upside down so they mean something different than they normally have for years and years, thousands of years. And that can get us into trouble. We're going to talk about two of those. One of those is the word love. Some people think love means if you love me, you accept me, you own, you celebrate anything I would choose to do. And that's not what love is. We can love people and not approve of what they're doing, which takes us to line number eight. Line number eight says, disagreement equals, what do you think it is? Hate. Wow. I thought it must have been up there. If you disagree with me, then you hate me. 
That's not true. That is not true at all. It should be so evident to that you disagree with that you have love for them, but that doesn't mean that you need to embrace and celebrate everything they choose to do. Jesus loved people. Do you, do you think Jesus loved people? Yeah, thank you. That's the right answer. But he didn't let people do whatever they wanted. You know, there's a story in Matthew. He goes into the temple and he sees these people who are, they're, they're basically ripping people off by selling the animals and the different things they would use for sacrifices. Jesus was not happy. Do you remember he, when he tore it apart, he dumped tables over, screamed at people, ran them out of the temple. He did not approve of what they were doing. But did Jesus love them? Jesus, thank you. Jesus, everybody. He sincerely did. It was his mission. His mission was to seek and save the lost. And to do that, part of doing that was loving them. So Jesus disagreed with people and he loved them. So don't let people, because you don't celebrate or approve of what they do or what they believe, that that means you hate them. Because that's just not true. If something is wrong that someone's doing, and you disagree with it, still, I mean, that might make you feel uncomfortable at times with what they're doing, and that doesn't mean you have to be there side by side with them, but they should know that you love them. There are ways you will concern and care for them without celebrating whatever it is they're choosing to do. So let's move on to number nine, which is another specific way that we might disagree with someone or brings us to light. You have no idea what this one is. Here it is. There are, this is a lie from our culture, there are many ways to have. Do you think the Bible has anything to say about that topic? Hmm. I think it does. Acts 4.12, Peter's talking about Jesus, and he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by we must be saved. That's pretty exclusive, isn't it? He's saying, yeah, there's one way. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Either Jesus was telling the truth in the statement or he was lying. And if he was lying, then he couldn't have been the sinless son of God. So those of us who follow Christ are sort of, you know, we made a bad mistake. It's one or the other. If you look at what Jesus said, you can't say, well, yeah, but if you consider this. No, it's one or the other. Either Jesus is the way or he's no way. That's number nine. And I know many of you have friends who belong to, who, who adhere to, rather, to many, many different faiths. Well, loving those people in spite of disagreeing with what their faith is, is what we're called to do. Let's move on. Number 10, things matter. We talked about this last week, some when we were talking about contentment, when we talked about how the things we can see are the things that are most important, you know, appearances, things we can hold in our hand. Um, the problem with things is they're temporal. Temporal means they're temporary. They're going to be gone. They're going to be gone next week, maybe. They're going to be gone next year, 10 years, 15, 100. They'll be gone. Basically, the only thing that will remain is people and God. 
So people matter much, much more than anything that we might have. We're not, our culture doesn't cause us to think that. We are so geared towards thinking, my clothes matter, my hair matters, all these other things do. And, and there is a place for them. However, people are so much more. 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul writes, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since, we have, what we, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen, eternal. And then a couple of verses from Colossians. These are awesome. It says, Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. So that's number 10. What is it? Things matter. All right, there's about half a dozen of you who are asleep. So if you'd each turn to your neighbor and wake them up, I'd appreciate that. And number 11 is Jeff. No, wouldn't that be funny if I had a slide that said Jeff? You'd all go, how do you do that? No. Number seven is, 11 rather, um, there is a path you have to follow. This relates to people-pleasing or relates to approval. Somewhat this is peer pressure related. You know, people assume you're a high schooler, so you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And, and this could apply to even your plans for the weekend. But, and think of it that way. It's not like because you're a high schooler and you go to school X, you know, you have to do this. Um, you know, you, you don't have to. You can do, you know, other things, whether it's, you know, choices people are making that are wrong or even activities you're involved with um, you know, on, a, on a regular basis. But thinking bigger picture than that, our typical view in society is you go to high school, and after high school, you, you know, many people will go to college. Many people will maybe go into the military, maybe they'll get a job right out of school. Um, you know, there's, there's a path that people expect us to follow many times. However, we don't have to always follow that. I think of Courtney, who, is Courtney here? Nope. So Courtney's not going to college next year. She's on a gear. She's going to go on a, a year-long mission trip, basically. Very, very countercultural in some respects. Um, there's, a, there's a girl I know who is a year out of high school. A year ago, when she and her family were going through terms of where she would go to college, her dad had an idea of where he wanted her to go. And she was thinking, I don't know if I should go to college next year. And um, they tussled back and forth. And finally, she said to him, at what point does what I think God wants me to do come into play in our discussion? And my friend JR was like, oh, I guess that would be probably about now. Let's talk about that. Um, you know, there, there's a path that we can just picture we're going to do this and this and this. This is how life is going to play out. But God could have a different path for you than what is happening with 95% of the people around you. And that's not bad. Be sensitive to what God wants you to do. John 12 <clears throat> tells a story about, well, it says, Yet at the same time, even among the leaders, or, or many even among the leaders, believed in him. So the religious leaders, some of them believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, these are the religious teachers, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise for or more than from God. Many times we can be expected to follow a certain path, 
but yet God has a path that's different for us. And we should be sensitive to that. And we should listen to him and obey him. There is a path you have to follow, but it's not necessarily the one that the culture is telling us about. All right, so we've gone through our lies. <clears throat> Very quickly, well, we had, we had the lion, remember? The lion was Satan. The witch was which are we going to believe? Remember the two hands? We're going to believe the culture. We're going to believe Scripture and what God tells us there. And then the wardrobe. And the wardrobe isn't, you know, the closet that you walk through. I'm thinking the wardrobe that God has equipped us with. In Ephesians 6, that, that's the passage we started in back here last week where we, we read about the battle we're in and it's not against flesh and blood but against spiritual forces that we can't see. Well, that passage is on where Paul tells us Here's the armor of God that you've been equipped with. I will let you read that on your sheets when we break here. But keep in mind, God has given us several things with which we can fight what are called the, the schemes of the devil. One of the best, one of the most significant is knowing what's in God's word. That's where, you know, in, in the Psalms, David wrote, you know, I've, I've hidden your word in my heart so I won't sin. And, and the Bible is called a lamp for our feet, or it's a light for our path. That is one of the key things that God has given us to equip ourselves with so we are able to fight this battle against the devil whose goal is to what? Devour us, okay? Remember that. That's what Satan wants to do. This is what we've got to battle against him. Let's pray.